Hello, friends. Sophia here. I recently had the great gift of being invited to participate in the first annual conference of the Clue here in the United States. Clue being communion and liberation for university students. And I recorded my talk to be able to share it with all of you. So enjoy. And for those of you who are academics or students, I'd love to hear about your own experiences of being Christian on campus. See you next month. Thank you, everyone. So um, we have the pleasure and honor to um, have Sophia Hirotsa here with us today. She's coming from Boston, um, but she just recently moved there. Um, she was abroad before that. Um, and so it's a really great honor. Um, she's bringing us a really unique perspective um, as someone working um, in neuroscience and um, someone who's completed her grad studies and kind of thinking through what does that mean for my life, um, for my work, what is the role of faith in work. So um, without further ado, I will kind of turn it over to her. So um, we will hear from you for a little bit and then um, we will kind of have a conversation um, after. Thank you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you all for being here. Thank you for the introduction to come and share with you a little bit about my experience of living as a Christian on campus, living my faith and my work. It's, uh, it's been amazing to witness the work of the Holy Spirit among you and to be renewed in my awareness of my belonging to this companionship, but also to ask again the question of why it is that I belong. So the topic, the title that Lele gave me for today is The Christian Presence on Campus. The Christian Presence on Campus. So in the last few weeks, I've been asking myself as I go about my work, as I go about my days, what does it mean for me to be a Christian on campus, specifically the Harvard campus, which is where I work? And pondering this question and looking at my life has provoked two dominant reactions in me. The first has been a terrible sorrow. Because I've seen in my life, as I look at myself in action, that very often I'm not with Christ in my work. So often. Because I'm there, and Christ is there, but I ignore him. I act as though he were not present. As Giussani says in Generating Traces about a family, but I think it's completely applicable to someone in a solitary workplace as well. Even a very Christian family, he says, can live in an unchristian way from morning till night. You don't need to kill or break all of the Ten Commandments at once to be unchristian. What makes us unchristian is the absence of Christ. So it's not automatic to be a Christian presence on campus, to live your work in the awareness of him, in the awareness of belonging to him. It's a grace that we have to beg for, as Father Pietro was saying yesterday at Mass. It's something that we learn by being a learner of Christ, as we just heard this morning. But the second dominant reaction that has emerged in these weeks of preparing for the conference is wonder, is wonder and gratitude. Because I've seen in these years of following Christ that it is possible to be a Christian on campus, to live with him in my work, even boring work or difficult work or work that I would never choose for myself. 
it's possible to live any work in relationship with him. And I've seen that when I do, that work becomes beautiful, that it becomes deeper, more dramatic, more engaging. And the whole world wants this experience. Everyone wants beautiful and fulfilling work. And I've seen that we can have it for free, as it were, if we do whatever it is that's in front of us for and with Christ. So I'm filled with gratitude. But for me, these kinds of statements don't make any sense unless we understand them in the context of life. They become empty words or abstractions unless we understand them in the context of life. So in this morning, I'm going to share with you a bit of my story about why I became a neuroscientist and how I try to live as a Christian neuroscientist. So the story began when I was 16 and first read a book about the brain, about how the brain underlies our thinking and behavior. Now, I've always been insatiably curious about the world in general, about people in particular, about why we do the things that we do. So when I discovered that studying this wrinkled organ in between our ears could tell us something about that, could shed light on this mystery of the human person, I was hooked. All the more so when I began to recognize the complexity and the beauty of that organ. And it still takes my breath away, so I have some pictures for you today. This on the left is a sketch done by one of the founders of the field of neuroscience of a single neuron in the cerebellum, which is the region in the back of your brain that coordinates your movement. One neuron out of 86 billion that are in each brain. Here on the right is a neuron in the hippocampus, which is a region of the brain that's really important for memory, among other things. One neuron, that orange one in the middle, that's connected to thousands of targets communicating with incredible complexity. Finally, this on the bottom is a model of the brain that I use in my research of the white matter fiber pathways in the brain. In other words, the highways of communication of your macroscopic brain networks. So all of that complexity and beauty, which I would say is more than exists in the entire cosmos, is within you, each of you, right now. And everything that makes you, you, every great capacity of your humanity, your creativity, your desire, your freedom, all of that is in continuity with this. It's predicated upon and in continuity with this matter. It's incredible. In front of this kind of beauty, my heart is immediately moved by the spontaneous recognition that my life is given. It's given to me by another, and clearly another who loves me because it's a beautiful nature that he's given. It's in front of this beauty, with this wonder. This is why I chose to major in neuroscience back as an undergraduate at the University of Notre Dame, to study this beautiful nature that he gave me so that I could love him better in return, so that I could understand how to love him back. But it was the summer after my freshman year at Notre Dame that I discovered my passion within neuroscience, that a subfield of neuroscience began to captivate me. That summer, I spent a couple months working at a school and orphanage in Asuncion, in Paraguay. Many of the children that I helped care for in the school and orphanage had grown up in the slums, and many of them in extremely challenging conditions. And it showed. Some of them had severe intellectual or emotional or physical disabilities. Most of them had problems regulating their emotions or entering into relationships with others. It was a hard summer. I was surrounded by this profound human need, went to daily mass in a chapel for people who were terminally ill, so there was often a funeral there. 
and was confronted with my own powerlessness to help anyone or even stay in front of the misery that I saw around me and within me. And yet in the course of that summer, I saw a miracle happen. I saw that in the orphanage, this religious sister in particular, I saw that the love that the adults in the community showed these children changed them, enabled them to begin again, to be like children for the first time, to learn how to play. Over the course of the summer, I saw one child in particular learn how to speak. They thought he was about eight years old, and at the beginning of the summer, he couldn't say a single word. It was incredible to see this new life. And I was struck because at this point, I had begun my studies of the brain. And so I knew that there's this intimate unity and continuity between soul and mind and matter. I knew that their brains must have changed if this new life was possible that the life that the Lord wanted to give them through the love of this religious sister, he gave them in their very bodies through the physical presence of this other, through the presence of this woman who loved them. And I wanted to know how, on the biological level, how this was possible. So I studied this question, but I didn't get conclusive answers. I was frustrated by the reductiveness of existing explanations, and it haunted me. Later, as a senior in college, I was trying to discern what to do, and I applied for a scholarship that would support graduate studies in England in any topic or any degree program, and I received it. And so in thinking about what I wanted to do with this incredible opportunity, I decided to do a PhD in neuroscience to try to understand the neural mechanisms that mediate this kind of experience of love and the experience of the wounding effect of sin that had harmed these children in the first place. Now, I didn't put that in my PhD application. So in secular terms, the PhD is to identify the neural mechanisms that mediate the impact of early adversity on child development. But this decision, even in, in these terms, was born of my experience of wonder. Wonder at the beautiful, complex nature of embodied human life and wonder at the role of love within that life. But when I left Notre Dame and arrived in Cambridge, which is where I studied, I was saddened to find around me a very different mentality, a different way of looking at reality. For many of my fellow scientists, the human person is just a machine, a collection of atoms with a particular organization. And so you can understand her fully by just looking at her physical and chemical parts. Even more than that, you can understand and predict her future by looking at her physical and chemical parts because she's fully determined by these material antecedents of her human existence, which is the phrase that Jusani uses in the religious sense. As I got to know the people around me better, I saw that this reductive view of the human person, of our subject matter as scientists, also changed how they, they see themselves and how they see their work. Because if you believe that your research subjects are fully accounted for by the material antecedents of their existence, this accounts for your own existence too. So you, you have to take for granted the fact that you exist at all. And once you take your life for granted, reality no, no longer fills you with wonder. And if you don't have wonder animating your work, what, what is work? It's a tool to manipulate reality according to your ideas, instead of what science should be, which is a means for our human questions to become discovery, always starting from wonder. And this is not limited to my colleagues. I see this mentality in myself, too. This is where I would be. It's often how I wake up in the morning. And this is where I would remain 
if not for the companionship that accompanies me, and if not for, as we heard, how the event of Christ reaches me through the church, through my friends. And I think this way that materialism shapes us as scientists and our work accounts for the barrenness of a lot of neuroscience. You might not know, but there's been this crisis of replication, of replicability of a lot of not just neuroscience, but psychology and other sciences. Most published research findings in my field are not held up by secondary analyses, by reanalysis of the same data or by repetition of the study. And now, okay, some of this is because of honest mistakes and limitations in our methods, but a lot of it is because of sin, because of bias in the way that we approach reality, that we start with our ideas instead of our questions. But as a graduate student, I fought to free myself from this dehumanizing mentality, as I said, with the help of my friends. How? But by working to strengthen my memory of what brought me to neuroscience in the first place. Again, wonder at my own existence as given and as good, and wonder at the power of love. With their help, instead of becoming a tool to manipulate reality according to my own ego in the end, my PhD work became what it should be which is a means for my passionate desire to understand reality to become knowledge with this grace of this companionship that regenerates me. My curiosity really has become discovery. I've uncovered surprising results in my work about how children's experiences, particularly within the home in their early life, shape their neural development. So in this way, I think I've verified in my life what St. Gregory of Nyssa said in the fourth century, that ideas create idols, only wonder leads to knowing. This is the first lesson I've learned about what it means to be with Christ, to remain with Christ in my work, to be a Christian presence on campus. It means to have the eyes of a child, eyes wide open in wonder at reality, excluding nothing, and to look at everything in the awareness that it's given, including ourselves, us, first of all, but so too our work, our colleagues, our society, and this wonder leads us to knowing more truly than do those who take reality for granted. So the Christian presence is one that knows through wonder. But this lesson was not enough to sustain me through graduate school because my path was set in motion by a very beautiful encounter, but it quickly became one of profound sacrifice. I knew even before I started graduate school that I don't enjoy research. Research in general, and scientific research in particular, is frustrating work. You're asked to study a very narrow aspect of reality that often seems not to matter at all. It's deeply solitary work. The methods that you use often fail and are always inefficient and reductive. And to top it all off, as I mentioned before, you're immersed in this highly ideological, competitive environment. These elements of my work are exactly contrary to all of my natural inclinations. <laughs> I'm someone who needs to be with people, who needs to ask expansive questions, who needs to see that her work is helping people, particularly people who are suffering. But I knew from the outset at the very beginning that this PhD would be across a desert, but I was certain that he was calling me to do it. And so I chose to say yes, to beg him to be with me in that desert, as he says in the book of the prophet Hosea where he says he will allure Israel into the wilderness in order to speak tenderly to her and win her back to himself. But from the first month, as soon as the novelty of being in this beautiful city in this foreign country wore off, I was already in agony. 
already full of pain at the inadequacy of my work and my desire for that work to be something else. And as a forgetful woman, I allowed this to lead me to rebellion. I rebelled like the Israelites in the desert with the golden calf or murmuring against the Lord that they're tired of this manna. I complained, I wanted something else. But fortunately, this posture of rebellion made me even more miserable. <laughs> so I couldn't sustain it. Instead, from this place of misery, I was brought to cry out to the Lord for help. And what came to me in that moment was a memory, an overwhelming memory, a memory of shoveling manure. So allow me to explain. The summer before I started graduate school, right after I graduated from Notre Dame, I lived at a Benedictine monastery in Colorado, a community of about 30 cloistered nuns who were also cattle ranchers. My life with them was very simple. We chanted the divine office seven times a day, and in between we either slept or worked. It was haying season, so I spent most of my work periods on the farm, either baling hay or cleaning out the chicken coop or performing tasks. And in that time with them, I learned what it means to pray. I saw in them that every action can be prayer if it's offered to Christ. If it's performed in the entreaty that Christ come and in gratitude for his mercy, every action. And I saw that by praying without ceasing in this way, or at least by praying like more than you can pray, that the divine bridegroom really does make his love present in everything. He transforms everything with his beauty. And this lesson was made particularly evident to me one day when I was assigned to work with a young nun, Sister Asunta. Her superior offered us a couple of tasks to choose from, organizing a workbench or painting or cleaning out all of the cow poop that had built up in the milking shed. Needless to say, one of these tasks is not like the other, and I was fully expecting her to be like, we're going to organize the shed. But Sister Asunta, with this radiant smile, volunteered us to shovel the manure. And I was baffled because for me, I was like, okay, she's choosing suffering for its own sake. But as I followed her out to the farm and began working with her, in silence, I discovered myself full of gladness because what struck me in that moment, because of the very stench of the manure in front of me, was that the only reason we were doing this work was because of Christ, that he took on our condition, my sin, my misery, which was so much worse than what was in front of me, and transformed it into his own nature. And that because of this act of self-gift of his, all of reality is beautiful. All of life, my life has infinite worth. So I was moved by that recognition to offer this work for those who don't know Christ. And it became a beautiful afternoon that I still remember. And this memory returned to me in graduate school during my period of rebellion, of longing for escape from Cambridge. And I realized in that moment that my true desire was not for a change in my circumstances, but to be with Christ. And I realized that it was possible with exactly what was given to me right there and then, to have the fullness of joy that I had at the monastery. And so I began to beg for it, to offer my work again, these small tasks of coding and Python, as I had learned to offer the many dishes that I washed and the floors that I had mopped at the Abbey. And what I found once again was gladness. Note that this was not a one-time occurrence, as we talked about before. Encounter demands that you follow. My pain and dissatisfaction with my work didn't stop the whole time I was in graduate school. It grew. It's still present with me now as a postdoc. My work as a neuroscientist remains something I would not choose for myself. And sometimes I rebel against this. But not for long, because I said rebellion makes me miserable, and it leads me to the threshold of crying out to Christ and begging for him to save me. 
So in the end, I'm grateful for this pain. And I'm grateful that I was asked to do in these years a work that I never would have chosen for myself. Because it serves as this continual provocation to rediscover why I do anything at all, not just my work, but anything. It's only for him. This is the meaning of reality, is, is the purpose of reality is to provoke in us this recognition. And so this is the purpose of my work. But there's a refrain that I want to share with you that helps me in this dynamic. Uh, while I was at the, the Abbey, I came across this story of St. Benedict. One day, Benedict heard that Martin the Hermit, who was renowned in the surrounding area for the exceptional sanctity of his life, had decided to force himself to remain in the cave that he had chosen as his dwelling by making himself a rough, a voluntary prison, tying one end of a chain to his foot and the other to a rock. Between the saints, there is, at times, a daring intimacy. The abbot of Monte Cassino, which is St. Benedict, sent one of his disciples to this hermit of Mount Marisco with a singular exhortation. If you are the slave of God, Martin, it is not a chain of iron that keeps you, but the chain that is Christ. La catena que ti lega es Cristo. The chain that like binds you, that ties you, is Christ. When we're faced with sacrifice, which academic work, no matter what it is, always entails, when we're faced with sacrifice, the only chain that can bind us to it is love of him, loving adherence of the man who knelt sweating blood in Gethsemane for us, who took our sins to the cross, who rose so that we too could live, adherence to him is the only thing that can enable us to sacrifice with gladness. So a Christian on campus is one who works out of obedience to Christ, not for our own pleasure, not for our own instinct, not even the realization of like our gifts and our talents, our self-fulfillment. We're here to follow Christ. And the chain that binds us to reality is love of him, our desire to be with him, even as we heard before when this leads us to the cross. One who follows this path of sacrifice, in my experience, will discover that it not only leads to everlasting life on the day of eternity, but as Father Giussani reminded us so many times, more now, an impossible fullness of life now. Sacrifice doesn't stifle our humanity. It instead bears fruit in the hundredfold that Jesus promised to whoever leaves anything for his name. And I've tasted this as a neuroscientist. I do continually. Every time that I renew the sacrifice of doing a job that I would never choose for myself, or every time I'm asked to affirm the truth instead of my ideas. When I say yes to this invitation, which is not automatic, I discover something beautiful. I taste a freedom, a capacity for risk, a joy, an awareness of the meaning of things that I don't see in my colleagues. This for me is the evidence of the life of the risen Lord within me. So a Christian on campus is one who carries the cross, but also experiences, precisely because of this, the resurrection. But this is the final point I want to make, that even seeing this dynamic in my own life is not enough for me, because the cross and the resurrection are for the whole world, not just for me. That the salvation that we yearn for, that we beg for, is either for the whole world or not at all. And the further that I've gone into neuroscience, the more I see the depths of the need that the world has for that salvation. First of all, starting with myself. But in the academy, in academic work, I see this particularly in the spiritual impoverishment of the university. And I think this is largely because of secularism, the secularization of culture, which since the Enlightenment has separated these spheres of value from one another. In other words, there's no longer 
a common ideal by which we can judge everything, by which our individual disciplines can be united. And this cuts people off from the meaning of their life and the meaning of their studies and leads them to disregard anything that's not technocratically useful, that doesn't ultimately serve some economic profit or their own ego. With this emptying out of ideals, I think this is what's provoking the like listlessness that we see in our generation. And again, I see this in myself too. We settle for small desires. And because of this, we're bored. And the only thing that shakes us out of this boredom is sometimes this like mortal anxiety that seizes us. But again, we don't know what that anxiety is about or what our desires are for. And so we anesthetize it and lapse back into this stupor that we live of party after party or Netflix show after Netflix show or overwork through exam after exam. And I can say these things because I lived like that. Before I encountered Christ in high school, that's how I lived. That's where I sought my fulfillment in working hard and playing hard. And so I know from my own experience that what this boredom masks is a deep longing. What this mental health crisis is showing is a deep longing for Christ, for truth, goodness, justice, beauty, and for the knowledge that these things became flesh in a presence, that truth, goodness, and beauty dwells among us, has pitched his tent among us in a presence that we can encounter. And we who are in this room, we know this. We know him because we've been given the grace of faith through a companionship. So we know the one upon whom all of Western civilization was founded. I mean, think about it. He inspired the greatest art and architecture and social work and poetry and the greatest geopolitical movements of the last 2000 years. And we know that he's still present and that he inspires everything that's true and beautiful within culture even now, even if it doesn't speak of him explicitly. There's no secular on the one hand and spiritual on the other. Jesus Christ is the meaning of everything. So what does this mean for the way that we live on campus? Well, I think we have a task to renew the university from within, to renew and preserve the meaning of what we do and what all of our companions are doing, not through proselytizing, but simply by doing our work in connection with the whole and asking him to come. Like the Benedictine monasteries that preserved Western culture during the barbarian invasions in the Middle Ages. They didn't make it their project to save Western civilization. They didn't set out to rebuild culture. Instead, each monk or nun merely offered his or her life to Christ in obedience to the small task given to him or her of copying this manuscript page, teaching that local villager some trade. It's precisely through this small daily offering, this daily obedience, that together they allowed the Lord to enter and transform all of culture to transform the face of the earth. So this is the third lesson, that the Christian presence on campus is the salt and light of that campus. The Christian on campus is one who knows the only one because of whom every discipline is worthwhile, in whom they all find their fulfillment. And so the Christian on campus can proclaim the truth in a way that renews the people around her, giving them hope and the meaning that they're thirsting for. Again, simply by seeking his face and everything that she does. So these are a few lessons that I wanted to share with you today that have struck me in these weeks of preparation as fruits of my belonging to this companionship. It's obviously a, a topic that goes far beyond what I've shared now, and so I'm grateful for the chance to engage in some conversation, first with Michelle and later in the Q&A with 
all of you to learn also from you what it means to be a Christian on campus. Thank you. Up to that point, though, I had been in Catholic school, um, so I went to Boston College for undergrad, and my experience in grad school really was um, an experience of like a, a realizing I had a deep need for Christ in my life um, because I was in such a secular environment, um, and the you know the church was not as present on campus as in my past as a student. Um, and so I found myself, you know, on Sundays just with this deep desire to, before I would sit down to do, you know, whatever coursework was due on Monday, to go to church and, like, start my day with church. Um, and that was honestly something that I didn't necessarily always feel a need for when I was at Boston College. So it was kind of surprising to me. And I kind of just followed that, and that really, you know, grew into going to school community at a later point and all these other things. But I, I'd like to hear you talk just maybe a little bit more about, in your experience, kind of um, this, this concept of kind of being salt and light. How has that kind of functioned differently, you know, in a secular environment like Cambridge? And how, how is that maybe similar or, or different, I don't know, for you um, in a more Catholic context like, like Notre Dame, maybe where you mm-hmm. went to undergrad? Because um, I think for me, my first year coming here, it was, I was almost like, you know, just surprised by being in such a Catholic context and because um, it was such a stark, especially in academia, like such a stark difference from, from my grad work and where I was before. Um, yeah, I don't know if you have um, mm-hmm. kind of a way to speak to both the similarities and differences of, of what salt and light means in, in both kind of maybe a secular university environment and then a you know, more Catholic university. Yeah, yeah, thank you. It's a super important question. And I think my response would take two primary streams. The first is this profound gratitude that there are places where you're not alone as a Christian on campus, that you're formed by the people around you, by the professors who teach you, by the chaplains who minister to you. To, to learn how to live your faith in unity with everything. It's very important that there are places like Benedictine and Notre Dame where what dominates is not secularism. This is a huge grace. And those of you who are at religious institutions who have this kind of life on campus, it's something to be very grateful for and to take advantage of. Because you're at university in preparation for being sent out into the world. Your task as a Christian is to bear witness to Christ. You're being formed for that purpose, to be sent out on mission. And those who remain on that campus are, in a sense, the physiological back lines of the church in the world. So even if you remain on a religious campus your entire life, your task is to bear witness to the entire world. So the first thing I would say is to be grateful for and to drink deeply from that stream. But the second thing I'll say is that in my experience, Catholic campuses have the same problem of secularism as anywhere else in a certain sense, that they still 
lack the proclamation that Jesus Christ is the meaning of everything. And I see this particularly in the way that there's a certain mentality of separation of the church from the world, that Christ happens in the theology department and at campus ministry and not in the gender studies department. And in fact, if we're being true Christians, we need to defend the church against the encroaches or the threats that are present elsewhere, which, if you think about it, is directly contrary to the idea that Jesus Christ is everything and everyone and that God is the truth of anything that's true. And so I think that being salt and light on a Catholic campus means to bear witness to the fact that Christ is, is everything. And so to not be afraid, to go and look for him in everything, in engineering and in post-colonial literature and in art and poetry and on the soccer fields, what does your faith have to do with that? I think Catholic campuses need this proclamation desperately. For me, this is a beautiful way of answering Pope Francis's call to go to the margins, to go in those places that don't know Christ, precisely where he seems to be embraced by everyone, that that's a place that needs mission, precisely through looking for how Christ is the truth of everything. And the final thing I'll say is, if you don't live mission, your faith dies. This is my experience, that as soon as I forget that what's been given to me is for the whole world, it dies in my hands. And so it's only by, there's this phrase that I came across, I can't remember where, years ago of, in Spanish, misionando fuimos misionados. In going on mission, we were missioned to. Um, and that's very much my experience of taking seriously this task of being salt and light enables the salt not to lose its flavor and the light not to go out. Um, and so not to look at this task of bearing witness as like an onerous responsibility placed on you or something to do once you're good enough, but precisely how you receive again the life that you need. Um, I'm wondering if you could even more specifically speak to kind of like how do you go about like sharing your faith publicly? Um, I think about how um, it's kind of, I think, thank you for kind of saying, you know, it's important to kind of find Christ everywhere. Because I know for me in my grad school, thinking about this this next question, my, my dissertation advisor um, is Chinese, like has no, he's like basically an atheist. Um, and yet he was the like one person who was so supportive of me when I said, hey, I think I actually want to study the Jesuits. <laughs> <laughs> in in, uh, in English doing rhetoric and composition. Um, and then the other person in my department who was super supportive is like, a, he's a practicing Hindu. Um, so it, it was kind of, um, yeah, just like a reminder of the, the kind of surprising places where you can kind of find this grace um, from God. Um, and at the same time, like the irony of all that was, when I did decide to do a dissertation project on the Jesuits, after kind of, yeah, overcoming my own fears of the secular institution that is English studies, the one person in my department who warned me before I started applying for jobs um, to not talk about the fact that I was Catholic, to say, okay, it's okay if you study the Jesuits, you can kind of turn that into a scholarly affair, but like, 
when you get interviewed on campuses, do not say that you're a practicing Catholic. You cannot say that. Was, in fact, the only practicing Catholic in our department. <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh, um, uh, what do I do with this? <laughs> and, um, and that was something that I kind of had to stay with for, um, for a while. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so how, like for you, um, how have you shared your, like, what does it mean to kind of do that in kind of a concrete way? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, very struck by this question. I've come across this, this precise dynamic in my own life in a very intense way. And I've had to learn through my own experience, what the line is to follow, how to be, simple and honest and not an activist in the way that I share my faith publicly. Um, and I think the place where I've discovered freedom is by learning or trying to learn that ontology comes before ethics. So if I'm a, a Christian and I'm meant to bear witness to the whole world, this is something about my being and my identity and my belonging before it's something about a behavior that I need to do. Like we heard in the Canticle of Isaiah in morning prayer today that the Lord will make us the light of all nations to carry his salvation to the ends of the earth. That this is who we are. This is to whom we belong. And it's because of our belonging to him that the task is asked of us so that the whole world might know and believe in him. And so I think each one of us has the beautiful occasion when faced with a question of how public should I be about my faith with this friend, in this job application, online. There's this question of who do you belong to? What is your identity? And from there, the responsibility, the ethical duty, the behavior comes. For me, when I started asking myself this question, what immediately came out was that all of the reasons I had to hide my faith were preconceptions that I'd received from other people. Fears that I had from other people, from hearing gossip of like, you're never going to get that scholarship if they find out that you're Catholic because they'll think you're pro-life. You're never going to get into this program because they'll fit X, Y, Z. And it was because of this that I was hiding my faith. It wasn't a judgment of mine. It was a judgment of other people. So I started to say, okay, well, let's look at my life because I know as belonging to Christ, I'm meant to share this with the whole world. And the clearest way to do that seems to be to be public about the fact that I belong to Christ and I think he's the meaning of everything. So is it true in my life that I see, is there evidence that I shouldn't be doing this? And as soon as I started to ask this question, what, what I've received and continue to receive, which is why I continue to do public things as a, as a Catholic public intellectual, is that no, on the contrary, the Lord bears tremendous fruit when we choose to say yes to him in this way. Don't get me wrong. There are people for whom the answer to that question is no. Like, uh, I was reading about Miguel Pro the other day and the lengths to which he went to disguise his identity as a priest from the, the police in Mexico. Like, okay, if you're Miguel Pro, like, please, in a certain sense, put your light under a bushel basket and so they, they don't kill you. But for most of us, that's not the dynamic, right? It's, okay, a friend might look at you a little bit differently. A professor might respect you a little bit less. Um, great. You're bearing that for his name. That's a gift to you that you suffer for his name. And you'll see instead that more often than not, these specters and fears are not rooted in reality. I've had so many encounters with colleagues where 
Um, like I think of one lunch that I had with a colleague where she asked me, oh, what are you planning on doing this weekend? And that weekend, finally, I was able to go on retreats. So I said, oh, I'm going to a monastery in York um, and I'm going to spend the weekend in silence. And she's like, why would you do that? And I said, well, I believe in Jesus Christ, so I want to go be with him. And, um, <laughs> and she was from a, a former communist country in Eastern Europe that's incredibly secular now. And she was very surprised but instead of the surprise that I expected, which was this, oh, you must be a bigot, you know? Instead, it was the surprise of, ah, no wonder. I knew since when I talked to you that there was something different. This is what it must be, which is incredible. That's not the reaction that these, again, these specters and fears in my mind, which would have said, oh, don't tell her you're religious because she's never going to be open to you again. On the contrary, she was able to make the connection and in a sense, recognize who Christ was. Because in that moment, I chose to share with her publicly, simply, again, it wasn't activism on my part. I didn't sit her down and say, all right, I'm Catholic. <laughs> Instead, it came out because I shared my life with her, because I try to spend my life with Christ. And so when I spend it with other people, they're going to come into contact. So a series of disjointed reflections on my experience is what's just come out of my mouth. But I suppose the synthesis is be simple with who you are and who you belong to. Live the unity of your life in a simple way. And the, what the Lord is asking of you will be clear. If it's sacrifice and you don't, that friend doesn't like you as much, great, you deserve a better friend. And if it's instead these beautiful encounters that come of people asking you questions, taking seriously their own desires, initiating conversations you never would have had otherwise, for me, that nourishes my faith more than anything. So there's something for you in taking seriously your ontology of belonging to Christ and being his witness and listening very seriously to the promptings of the Holy Spirit without reference to the fear that is inculcated in us in the academic environment that people are going to reject you. I will also add, I think, um, for me, like thinking about the keynote, I know like I've made mistakes or like I've maybe denied Christ in circumstances where I shouldn't have, but like living this as a relationship and an ongoing encounter and ongoing experience, Christ like always finds a way <laughs> to push himself back into my life and force me to, um, yeah, to praise like his presence. Um, and so for anyone who feels like they're not living fully as the light of, um, yeah, Christ, um, that, that's something that has helped me. Um, do you think we have maybe one more question for conversation we can have and then we'll open up? Okay, so my final one, final thing that I, I'd really like to talk about, um, first of all, is just, I don't think you've said this today, but it's stuck with me since our earlier conversation in the week, so I just want to, I want to reiterate it because it's been so helpful to me. Um, which is we were kind of talking about these questions earlier in the week and um, what it means to live this in any different context. And you said you can't escape the drama. Um, and that was so helpful to me because in my own life, you know, I, I didn't expect to get this job at Benedictine. Um, I found myself um, pregnant before I was, you know, when my postdoc was ending and I had a, you know, all these plans to apply to all these jobs and it was like, there's no way I can do that because the due date is February when there's on-campus interviews and I cannot fly about to give birth. Um, and so I had this conversation with my husband and we were like, wait, so 
you know, I'll take a year off or whatever. Um, and then this job gets sent to my inbox at Benedict Inn that's like exactly what I want. Um, and I had, you know, heard about this campus from um, friends who had gone here and stuff. And so we rehad our conversation and it was like, okay, well, like, I'll apply to like this one job. Um, and then I get a call from the chair of the department like the week before theater's due to come out for an interview. <laughs> Oh gosh, <laughs> I can't do that. Um, and I'm actually pregnant and due next week. Um, and anyway, long story short, I end up on campus. We end up moving um, from Washington, D.C. to here. I get the job. Um, and this whole sequence of events has just really been like such a clear sign that. I'm not in control of my destiny, but Christ is, um, and I'm here to follow him um, and where he leads, and he has a much, much greater vision of what that means than I can ever attempt to plan um, or organize. Um, and this weekend was like a really, um, this past week was a nice reminder of that because I um, we had a, a friend in town from, um, DC from our, my old school community and this last the last two weeks have actually been very intense and crazy with work and I found myself kind of asking like okay I'm following Christ but this is almost too much and like how like there's this beauty that you've given me and I'm just pursuing it um, but I don't I feel like I cannot hold like handle this on my own and it was in articulating this, like taking a day off and articulating this to my old friend that I kind of came to realize, you know, how, how, to, how to actually approach this and, and what does it mean for my life and that, yes, I can't escape the drama. Um, and so I wanted to kind of ask you, you kind of mentioned this in your talk, the idea of memory. Mm -hmm. And for you, um, how has community and how has the witness of other people been part of that process of memory? Because I think for me, that is something that is kind of my access point a lot of times when I forget. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very, uh, very relatable. I, what comes to mind is the line from Tertullian that Giussani loved of the flesh is the hinge of salvation that it's in a companionship in the flesh that our salvation reaches us. It's by staying with this companionship. The unity of that companionship is where Christ dwells. And so our memory is not like a cognitive conviction that we have stored away and can voluntaristically bring out of us whenever we want. Our memory must be lived. It's something that walks and it's a relationship with a presence. That's what memory is. And this, I'm still learning this. I'm so weak in this. But this for me is, is a complete liberation because I, I wake up a nihilist most days. I don't wake up happy or Christian, really. I don't. And this used to be how I lived my day the whole way through as a teenager. I, and I haven't fixed myself. I haven't changed my personality. But I belong to a place where my salvation comes. I can't save myself, but I belong to a place and I know that that's the place where my salvation comes. And it's so simple to live my belonging to that companionship. Simple does not mean easy, but it's simple. The example that comes to mind is with the onset of COVID. I was living in England 
They had pretty strict rules about what you could and couldn't do. I was allowed to leave my house once on a daily walk. So sometimes that daily walk was like 20 miles. <laughs> But I was really lonely. I was lonely and dissatisfied and saw around me my school community was composed mainly of families with young children. So they, they, on the contrary, were experiencing more social stimulation than they'd ever had and ever wanted. And I, on the other hand, was alone, completely alone. And I let this like get to me. I was like, this isn't supporting me. I don't feel sustained. How is it that Christ, is it really true that this companionship is coextensive with the way that Christ reaches me now, particularly as I'm not re receiving the sacraments, so I can't have this. It really is here that Christ comes And I allowed this to become bitterness about the community and about the way that we talk about community in the movement. And I was telling a friend this, and he's like, have you asked them for help? <laughs> and I realized the answer was no. <laughs> I hadn't told them that I was suffering loneliness, right? And it was hard to say like, guys, uh, can one of you please come and stay with me? Can you have me over to your house? Can I babysit your children? Can you come to mass with me? It was hard because it was humbling to realize that I was so blind to the fact that my needs, my need for them is my need for Christ. Or in other words, to put it maybe better, my need for Christ is my need for them. And so it's reasonable to share everything together in this way. And what happened is that, again, not overnight, but slowly, A beautiful friendship emerged. This was right after I moved to England and a beautiful friendship emerged between me and these people who now I count among my dearest mentors and friends and who have taught me so much. But it was not, it was hard to accept this ascetic act of saying my fulfillment passes through these people. And so I must be very simple with my needs. And it was hard because I'm proud, but, but it's so simple. So yeah, so I guess I would say The memory of Christ is something that dwells in a companionship and this is for our freedom and this is for our joy because it's so much richer and it changes us and fills us with so much more life than a memory that we could have and hold for ourselves and preserve on our own would be. And so it's a gift. Our weakness is a gift for us. Our dependence on one another is a gift for us. So just be simple with your needs. Thank you. Thank you. Um, it's amazing how much, like, yeah, you can just say something to someone and they just, they're like, oh, the obvious choice that you just completely <laughs> overlooked. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we have time for questions from you guys. Um, so please, you, you can probably just raise your hand and stand up or, or maybe just stand up and um, ask your question if you 